tired of fighting those grimy, old stains? Working yourself to the bone, but it's just no use? Are you looking for something better than what you found so far? You've tried everything else, but now is the time to come clean. Oh yeah! Good morning! <laughs> I was talking to a friend. I went over to Discovery a few minutes ago, and a friend said, Man, last week it was White Snake, this week it's the Oak Ridge Boys. Um, <laughs> only one thing to say welcome to New Spring. Um, that's sort of who we are. I'm so glad you're here today. We're in a series called Come Clean. A friend who told me at the end of last week's service, he said, um, there's only, I only have one regret about your design. And he talking about what's going on stage. I said, what's that? He said, well, I had a load of socks I should have brought this week. So uh, <laughs> let me just tell you, in case this is your first time to be here, let me tell you what Come Clean is all about. We are getting prepped here at New Spring for the service of the year. It's called Watermark, and it's two weeks from today. And I need to let you know we will not have a service on our campus that weekend. So if you come here, uh, we're not going to be here. You can have a prayer meeting for us. But what we'd much rather is for you to come to this very special service. We have rented the Hartman Arena. I think we're going to be there the night after Chicago is there, um, which I, I thought, man, they should give us free tickets, but they did. Uh, that's another <laughs> Chicago is my favorite band. Uh, that's more than you want to know. But in any event, we're, 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 we're getting ready for just this phenomenal day. And what, what we did last year, we, we set aside a day for baptism, a special day for baptism. And last year, we had like 165 people go forward with believers' baptism, going public with their faith. This year, we already have over 200 who have already signed up and said, we're ready to go. <laughs> And, and, and so what I'm, what I'm doing in this series, I, I want to make sure that we're ready for Watermark because the most important thing that needs to happen in your life is you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that, sometimes it's called salvation in the Bible. You may have heard a term that Jesus used. He called it the new birth. Sometimes it's called regeneration. It can be called redemption. But when it's all said and done, it gets down to one thing. When you come to Christ in faith, you are forgiven of your sins. God gives you the gift of eternal life, writes your name in the census book of heaven, and you are God's child, and nothing can ever take that away from you. You can never lose that relationship. At some moment in your life, you must make a willful decision to accept Jesus Christ. Just like a bride chooses to accept a man as her husband, a man chooses to accept a woman as his bride, you know, that's that moment where you make a choice. That's what's got to happen in our lives. And see, here's the deal. Baptism becomes the public symbol of that change. Every weekend, if you're here at New Spring, I always close the sermon with, would you like to pray to receive Christ? What I'm asking you is, would you like to make that decision to invite Christ into your heart and life? The moment you do that, you become God's child. You do not have to be baptized. In fact, baptism will not get you into that. But that can be private. Every weekend, many people pray to receive Christ, and nobody even knows what's going on. Maybe a person sitting next to you. You don't, they don't, you don't hear them say anything, maybe. They're praying to receive Christ, and they just made the most important decision of their life. That can be very private. Nobody could ever know about it. I prayed to accept Christ when I was 18 years old on the school ground of Forest Hill Elementary School in Fort Worth, Texas. My dad had preached the day before. If you ask Jesus to forgive you of all your sins, he'll forgive you of every sin. And boy, was I a sinner, even at eight. I really was. And I knew that was a great deal. I bowed over the water fountain of my school, prayed silently to invite Jesus into my heart and life. 
Baptism is something else. Baptism is going public. And it's saying, I want everybody to know I have made this decision. And I am publicly siding with Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Baptism must always be after that moment of inviting Christ into your life. So in these three talks that I'm giving, what I'm doing is I'm taking us back to the very first days, months, and years after Jesus set up the church. There's a reason for that. You give religion time, it can screw up anything. And religion has so screwed up salvation, and Lord knows it's screwed up baptism. And some of us have gotten tangled up in the backwash of all that, because what happened is at some point, we decided we wanted to get close to God, and some of us have tried the religious route. And, and here's the thing about religion, and I mean this in its negative sense. When I say I hate religion, I hope you understand I'm never meaning that I hate people. What I'm saying is I hate a system that says if you perform up to expectations, God will accept you. That message is a trillion miles away from this book. God accepts you like you are, and he won't leave you like he found you. That's what this book says. Religion says jump through this hoop. And then we'll have another hoop for you to jump through. And you obey these rules and you jump through the hoops. And if you jump through enough, you're eventually going to be one of the golden people. And and God will look down and smile upon you. In performance-based religion, that's the deal. Well, the reason why I set it up like this is in the book of Acts, we're just going back to the way the church was set up. And by the way, if that's a new term for you, Acts, it is the fifth book of the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament are stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four different accounts of Jesus on the earth. But Acts is such a very important book for us because it's all about how the church got started, what Jesus wanted, what it did in its earliest days. And see, the church has gotten so messed up on on all these things. We really just need to go back to be reset to default settings. So what we're doing is we're going back to Acts, and it's kind of cool how the Lord set this up. Set this up in three chapters in Acts eight, nine, and ten. There are three people who made this decision to invite Jesus Christ into their lives, and then they went public with their faith in baptism. And what we're doing these three weeks, getting ready for Watermark, is we're looking at their stories because there's just a little difference between between each one. In Acts eight, it's an African. We saw him last week. He is a seeker. He's just trying to find God. He's a smart man. He's a rich guy. In fact, he is the secretary of the treasury for Queen Candace of Ethiopia. He is a bright guy. Got lots of money, but it's left him empty, and he wants to find God. And so here we have, I mean, isn't it cool because God is saying right out of the box, you know what? Salvation is for all people, all generations, all situations. And, and so what happens is guys, he goes to Jerusalem because he thinks maybe there's some answers in Jerusalem, takes his motorcade to Jerusalem, goes to worship, buys a Bible, still can't figure it out, and he's on his way home. And last week you saw in our talk how that God gets one of his Jesus' disciples, Philip, to go talk to him. You know, Philip just goes out in this desert road and meets up with a guy and shows him who Jesus is, and the guy's so excited, he invites Jesus into his heart and life, and he follows the Lord in believer's baptism. Next week, I don't want to give it away, but next week we're going to a different situation. This guy is a Caucasian. He is a Roman. He, he grew up in paganism. And on top of that, he's an official in the army. He's the nice guy next door who would mow your grass if you're on vacation. He's the person who watches your house if you're away. He's the person that would spend his last 50 cents to help you if you needed help. But even with all that, he still needs Jesus. And next week, I don't want to give it away, but the Lord is going to send Peter to go talk to him. And not only is this guy going to come to know Jesus, his whole family is going to make this decision. Really cool. But sandwiched in between the seeker and the nice guy next door is the religious guy. 
Today, we're going to talk about the religious guy. His name is Saul. It's in Acts chapter 9. And let me just give this away as well. God is going to not only save him, God is going to change him dramatically. And his name is going to change to Paul. He will become one of the most influential people in the history of the world. I would say outside of Jesus, he was the most influential guy who ever lived. But you're not going to like him when you first meet him. Because you know what? Religion will screw you up. It will really mess you up. And it had really messed this guy up. He, and somebody could say, well, hey, Mark, I know I must be okay with Jesus because I grew up in church and I did all these things. See, here's, what, here's, what, here's the problem with religion. Anything that we think helps us have a relationship with God based on what we do will not work. And, and so here's the thing. Let me, let me just kind of tell you how this guy grew up because you could say, well, hey, wait a minute, Mark. I sort of like my religion and what it did for me. Think about this guy. You say, well, Mark, I go to church. This guy went to worship three times a day. You say, well, I go maybe two, two weekends out of the month. Three times a day. Well, I pray. So did he five times a day. And then fasting, is that something we do? That means going without food. And it's a good thing, and we probably should talk about it some weekend. Because um, if you can look at me, you can tell I don't do it just real often. <laughs> he fasted twice a week. And on top of that, he was a stickler. He tithed. Not, and listen, not just tithed on his paycheck. He tithed on his spices. In fact, if you had known Saul when he was a young guy, and you could have said, Hey, Saul, would you come over to my house for dinner? He probably, unless you were part of his group, he would say, I can't come over to your house because I don't know. You may not have tithed on all your salt. And you talk about, you know, leading a clean life. (laughs) History tells us they were called bleeding Pharisees because they were concerned that they might look at a woman and have a lustful thought. So anytime a woman came down the street, they put their, uh, cover their their eyes, and they're always running into things. That's why they called them bleeding Pharisees. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is a religious dude. Well, his parents, you know, they taught him from the, I mean, from the very earliest days of his life. Because somebody could say, well, hey, Mark, my, my parents initiated me in the church when I was still a baby. Well, when he was eight days old, they took him down to the temple, and they had him sealed with the sign of being part of that religion. And from that point on, they taught him the scriptures. He learned the Bible. He learned a whole lot of important stuff. And in those days, I don't have time to develop this. Let me just throw this at you. The way the law was presented back then, it was kind of combined between you know, the, the secular law and the religious law, it was all combined together so that when lawyers, when they tried cases, they actually went back to the Old Testament, the Bible, for, for, for citing precedent. And this guy Saul actually became a lawyer as a young man. He was one of the up-and-comers. In fact, his name Saul, his name Saul means asked for. As a young man, he was so brilliant, such a great thinker, and knew so much, and he was so ambitious that they made him an official as a young man. I need to tell you this. While he's growing up, there's another young Jew in the same time frame, and his name is Jesus, and he grows up very different. He grows up in a poor family, and he's a carpenter. But more than that, he's not just an ordinary human being. He is God come as a human being. 
And he starts doing dramatic things. And he starts shaking up the apple cart. And he starts unsettling all the religions because he's talking about having a serious personal relationship with God and following him from the heart and not from the outside. Jesus starts talking about a faith that works from the inside out and not from the outside in. And Saul doesn't like him very much. And all the guys in Saul's office, they don't like this guy, Jesus. And they start figuring out how can we stop him. And after three years of Jesus doing his thing, they decide what we need to do is we need to find some way to execute this guy because too many people have fallen and we've got to shut this guy down. And that Friday afternoon, when Jesus hung on a cross, Saul and all his fellow group, they said, boy, this is going to solve our problem. He is going away and he's never coming back and we have crucified him like a common criminal. And they're laughing and high-fiving and they're having a party there in the office that Friday afternoon. What Saul doesn't know is three days later on a Sunday morning, that tomb would blow wide open and Jesus would step out under his own power. And that revolutionized the world. Because a little ragtag band of Jesus followers, it became 120. And then on the day of Pentecost, it became several thousand. And as the word got out about Jesus coming back to life, it became so many thousands of people, they couldn't count them. And Saul and his other group said to themselves, his other group of lawyers, they said, we got a real problem on our hands now. And so this young prosecutor says, here's what we're going to do. we got to make an example out of these people. Guys, do you know why I hate religion? Religion does two, one of two things to people. This idea that if you perform up to expectations, and, and listen, religion can be in all kinds of situations. It can be in non-Christian groups. It can be in Christian groups. It can be in, you know, all kinds of, many of us have been in that situation before. Even, some of us have been in ministries that talk grace, but really when you got right down to it, it was about keeping rules and performing up to expectations. Here's what I hate about that. The first thing it will do, perhaps, is make somebody insecure because you can't keep the rules. And you mess up. And you think, well, I don't know if I can go back to church because I've messed up and I've done stuff that's wrong and I'm insecure and I just, I tried it and it doesn't work. I, I tried to jump through the hoops, but I keep tripping and falling flat on my face and now I'm embarrassed to go back. The second thing that it will do, religion will make you mean if you think you measure up because that will make you feel superior. The meanest people, listen to me. You know, every once in a while, somebody will come to me and say, well, Mark, is it okay if I come to New Spring? I'm an agnostic. I'm not sure I'm ever going to believe anything you say. Are you kidding me? I'm so glad you're here. You're who gets me up in the morning. You know, please just let me have a seat at the table. I'm so glad you're here. One thing I've discovered is honest agnostics who are true seekers of truth, they tend to come to Jesus faster than anybody else because they're so open. They don't have to unlearn all the junk that religious people have to unlearn. I mean, because God is always saying, it's so simple. But those of us who come from religion are saying, but you've got to obey the rules. And God is saying, no, no, it's a gift. It's grace. Oh, yeah, but you've got to do this. Religion had made Paul mean. He was in the second group. He thought he kept all the laws. He thought he was fine with God. He's in the inside group. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure all these Christians get dead. We're going to make examples of them. We tried to finish it off by stopping that guy, Jesus. Now we couldn't do that. We're going to get all the people who, who follow him, and we're going to bust them. We're going to put them in jail. Acts 9. Let's read. I want you to read about what happened to this guy. Meanwhile, verse 1. Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to, well, look at this, K-I-L-L. Here's a guy that thinks he's right with God. You know what he wants to do? He wants to whack people. He wants to kill the Lord's followers. Religion will make people mean. 
So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Notice that's capitalized. That's a word for Christianity. He found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Can you see him? He's riding his mule. He's there with his entourage of other attorneys. They got in their briefcases. They have open arrest warrants for any Christians, men or women. How cruddy is that? I mean, think about this. They, they would go into houses and stuff where believers were, and they would arrest men and women. No doubt children were thinking, where, where are you taking my parents? And, and what was their crime? Their only crime was they believed in Jesus. And this is Paul. He's a religious guy. He's doing this. Verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. We read that fast, but isn't that a cool story? I mean, here's Saul, man. Go get those Christians. Men, women, go bust them, go take them to jail. Here, all of a sudden, God just knocks him down. This is cool to me. I don't know if it, if it means anything to you. But I've been reading Acts 8, 9, and 10 for a long time. With the seeker, God just gently sends somebody to him. With Cornelius next week, God's just going to gently send somebody to talk to him. With the religious guy, God had to knock the guy flat on the... God had to knock him down. <laughs> I may be talking to somebody here today. And you're like Saul. You've got religion, and you know a lot of truth, but like Saul, you see, here was Saul's problem. He knew more truth probably than you and I will know. It had gotten into every part of him but his heart. It was in his head, but it wasn't in his heart. Ministers used to just make me so frustrated when they would talk like that when I was a kid. I would go to church services, and and I'd hear a minister say, the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches. The difference between your head and your heart. And I'm out there thinking, what in the world does that mean? Talk about the pump in your chest? No. Hey, listen, if you're doing a job and I say to you, put your heart into it, am I talking about your physical heart? No, I'm talking about your will. See, many of us, God has gotten into our head. We know facts about God, but it really hasn't had any bearing on who runs our lives. We know a whole lot about God. We've been to Bible studies. We've been baptized. We've had this experience and that experience, and we've led groups and stuff. But at the end of the day, we're still running our own lives, and we really don't let God get into the heart of our will. It hasn't changed us. 32 years of pastoring has taught me this. About the only thing that works with religious people God has to knock them down. An honest seeker, God can just send somebody. But a religious person who's right and knows all the answers, God usually has to knock them flat. Maybe something like the loss of a loved one. Maybe the loss of a job. Maybe a home breakup, marriage breakup. Something that humbles us. Well, I'm glad to tell you that he did accept Christ. Paul did, Saul God would later change his name to Paul. Remember, Saul means asked for. Paul means little. 
And it's funny thing is when Paul got little before God, he just went big and he started changing the world. And here's the cool thing, and I don't know how to preach this. I've been trying to explain this to friends, but for some of you, you have a hard time leaving religion in order to really embrace Christ because even now you're sitting back here thinking, well, boy, if I did what Mark was talking about, would that be a repudiation of all my religion that I had? Here's the thing. Paul knew a lot of truth. And when he really got hooked up with Jesus, God began to leverage all those true things that he learned when he was in religion. It was just now he was able to take those things and help other people with the truth he had learned. Are you holding a Bible in your lap? Do you have one at home or something? The second part of the Bible is called the New Testament. Did you know that out of the New Testament, this guy, Paul, wrote 13 books? So isn't it cool that as messed up as he was in religion, God so changed him that we have so much of his writing that we know how, what happened to him and how he felt later. And, and he changed the world. He took three missionary trips. He started churches all over the world. And like I said, outside of Jesus, I don't think anybody accomplished more. But for just a few brief moments, I want to take you to Romans chapter 7. This is what Paul is writing later. I want to show you the change that happened in his life. Because here's the deal. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't understand. I'm still struggling. Because you keep saying that Saul was religious and he did all these things. But then he has this change in his life. And, and, and I don't really understand what you're talking about. What exactly was this change? I'm wrestling with it myself. How do I know what is the change that takes me from where I just have religious facts into my head to where I have a real relationship with Jesus? I'm so glad Paul would answer that question in what I think is probably the greatest section of the Bible. It's the last part of Romans chapter 7, and then we're going to move into chapter 8. Look at verse 21. Verse chapter 7. I have discovered this principle of life. That's a great statement because he was saying, I wasn't born with this. This is something I learned. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. My hand goes up there. Anybody else? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm just saying. And see, here's the thing. Do you sense the change in him on the road to Damascus? I'm going to kill the Christians. I'm right. Everything I think is right. I know all the answers. Now he's saying as an older guy, as a follower of Christ, you know what I've really discovered about me? I'm all screwed up on the inside. I've discovered that when I want to do right, I do what's wrong. Verse 22, I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God I keep all the rules and that has done it. Is that right? No. Let's read the real truth here. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Beforehand, he said, the answer is in me and my ability to keep the 613 laws I have to keep. But he changes to say, you know what? The truth is, I'm all messed up on the inside. Even when I try to do right, I do wrong, and I can't figure out how I'm going to get anywhere. But he says, the answer is in Jesus Christ. And now he, 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 he extrapolates that. So you see how it is in my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. My favorite verse, perhaps in the Bible, Romans 8, 1. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. 
The law of Moses, that's keeping rules. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law, what rules could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Now, just in case we didn't get all that, let me tell you what Paul is saying. What he is saying, and this is what gets you from religion to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says, I had to get real and admit I couldn't do it on my own. I had to admit there were no rules I could keep. Even if there were rules I could keep, I couldn't keep them. My own nature just won't do right. And God knew that. Listen, guys, you have no idea how much God loves you. No idea. So God did what we couldn't do. He gave his son Jesus to come into our world, born human, and gave him a body like we have. And he ran the table. He never committed one sin. But what happened was, after living a perfectly innocent life, he laid down on a cross and allowed God to place on him all the sins that we've ever committed so that God, in his sense of perfect justice, could punish him for all our sins. And anyone who receives Jesus into his heart and life gets that where he paid for our sins. He, Jesus transfers his righteousness to us and we become God's children. Paul's saying, that's what works. That's what works. And then he gives you power to live a new life. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 9, we don't have time to do it right now. But after Paul, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus, after he embraced Jesus as a Savior, the Bible says he was baptized. Now, guys, let me tell you about baptism. As I said at the beginning, baptism is a public testimony of your faith. Baptism in the Bible always occurs after salvation. Because after all, how can you give testimony if something hasn't happened yet? And I know people mean so well sometimes, but people say, well, we need to get our children baptized. Here's the thing. You're not ready for baptism until you have made this conscious decision to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life, until you fully embrace it. Children are covered by the grace of God. But there must be that moment when, and so, you know, here's the thing. If you got baptized before you accepted Christ, that would be like wearing a wedding ring before you got married. That'd be kind of creepy when you think about it. If you did that, people start questioning your emotional stability. Right? A wedding ring doesn't make you married. You wear it because you are married. It's a tangible, visible, external symbol of an internal, intangible, invisible change. That's what baptism is. When you invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life, you could do it privately, like I said. But baptism is going public with it. But what does it really mean? You know, when, when, when in baptism, you know, you're going to see, if you go to, to, to Hartman with us, you're going to see hundreds of people go under the water and come up out of the water. What in the world is that all about? Is that just a ritual of the church? And by the way, we never want you to do anything just for New Spring Church. If we want you to do something, we want you to do it for Jesus. Paul explains that. And let's talk about it. This is in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. I'll close with this. Paul said, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, 
Now, also, we may live new lives. When a person is baptized, you know what they're saying? Without ever saying a word, they're saying, I want everybody to know I am identifying with the person who died for me, who was buried, and who rose from the grave. Now, when we baptize people, we don't leave them in the water. For one thing, they'd drown. Secondly, that wouldn't wouldn't show what God wants us to show. When you're baptized, you are buried with Christ, Paul says, by baptism, and you're raised. But there's more than that. Not only does it symbolize Jesus' death and burial, what what baptism symbolizes is the old person that I used to be. Remember who Saul was? He was so ugly. We didn't like him. He was all messed up with religion. What what he was later saying was, hey, the old person that I used to be, that person is dead. He doesn't live anymore. He was buried with Christ by baptism and raised to walk in a new life. My dad pastored the same church in Fort Worth for 49 and a half years. He was pastoring before I discovered America. <laughs> and I loved baptism. Even when I was a little kid, didn't understand what it was all about. I just loved baptism. It was kind of cool. My dad would walk into a pool of water, and people would come in. He'd put them under and bring them back out. And, and he, he used to say something. Every time he baptized, in all the years that my dad pastored, he said the same thing every time he baptized somebody. Buried in the likeness of his death. Raised to walk in newness of life. When I was little, I didn't know what he was saying. I was wondering who Eunice was. But as I got older, (laughs) I knew what he meant. I love that. I still love it to this day. That's what God was saying. See, that's what baptism is. Baptism is saying, hey, I used to be somebody else, and you wouldn't like that person very much. But Jesus has come into my life, and I'm still a sinner, and I'm still working on it. But guess what? I have become a new person in Jesus Christ. Has it ever happened to you? I, I wouldn't want to put doubt in anybody's mind, but on the other hand, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? It's such a huge question. And, and the thing that I'm concerned about instantly, I'm much more concerned with religious, those of us who have religious church backgrounds, I'm more concerned for us than I am for people that have never been to church. Because see, you know what? Somebody said a lot of people in religion, they just get vaccinated That's just they get enough of the virus to keep them from catching the real thing. Man, I remember many years ago when I first graduated from college, I went to Houston to be on staff of a church there as their associate pastor. And among the many responsibilities that I had, one of the responsibilities was overseeing a group of young, young, young college students. And we just had a college ministry that was just radical for God back then. I remember... In fact, several of these guys are pastors now. They used to love to just go out with me in the streets of Houston. We were inner city church. They used to just love to go out with me and just talk to people. And one Saturday morning, we were all doing that. And, and I know I got back to the office early, and the rest of the group, they kind of came back. Some of them came back and said, hey, hey, Mark, we, we talked to a guy, and he's got cancer, and he's got to have surgery. He's, he's kind of, you know, 60 years old or so. And we tried to help him, but we really couldn't. We felt like if you would go talk to him, maybe you could help him. So I drove over to his house and and talked with him for a few moments, and I knew he was going to have surgery the following Monday down at the hospital complex in Houston. And I promised him I would come down there and have a prayer with him before he went into surgery. And then the traffic was really bad that next Monday, 
as it can be in Houston sometimes. It took me, I think, an hour and a half to get down to the hospitals. And by the time I got there, they were on the what they were taking him back to surgery. And I had a hard time finding him. It was like a labyrinth to try to get in around. And I remember when I actually found him, the doctors were getting ready to take him in. And they were gracious and let me have a prayer with him. And, but he couldn't talk to me. He was having surgery on his voice box. And he was already kind of groggy. And they wheeled him on back. Several days later, he was home. And I went to his house. It was breakfast time. I remember that because he was eating breakfast at his table. By this time, he had an electronic device that he would lay, lay alongside his throat. And it would pick up some amplifications. And, and, and I was trying to sort out the words. And I got to after a while where I could pick them out. And I was getting ready to leave. And I, I just said to him what I say to people all the time. I said, can I ask you a question? Do you, are, are you sure about your relationship with God? Are you sure that you're going to heaven? And he said, no, I don't, I don't know. And I had a little Bible with me. I said, is it okay with you if, if I could read some scriptures to show you how you can have a relationship with God? And he said, yeah. And I showed him how to invite Christ into his life like I do at the end of services every week. And when I got to the end, I read Romans ten thirteen. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I said, would you like to pray to receive Jesus? My goodness, this has been 30 years ago. I can still remember as he placed that electronic device against his throat, and I can still remember what it sounded like as he prayed, repeated the prayer after me to invite Christ into his life. I hugged him, and I turned to walk away when I heard him call my name. And here's what he said to me. I was a deacon in the Helmer Street Baptist Church for 20 years. Religion doesn't work, folks. You got to have something real. There has to be that moment where like Paul, you you just own up to it and say, I can't do it by myself. How many of us have been in churches where people just put on a facade? You can't do it by yourself. And you come before God as a humble person and you say, Lord, I cannot save myself, but I believe Jesus did for me what I can't do for myself. And like a bride receiving her groom, I receive Jesus. I invite him to be my Savior and Lord. And from now on, by the power that you give me, I will do my best to follow Jesus, not in order to be God's child, but because I am God's child. I just explained the Bible to you in a couple of sentences. Anybody ready for that moment? I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads and pray. I'm going to pray. These aren't magic words, but I'll tell you, if you mean them from your heart, God will hear your prayer. I mean, he so desperately wants you to be his child. He's like leaning over in heaven, just listening for you. You don't have to pray out loud because he knows what's going on inside of you. And if, you, if you're ready to receive Jesus, you can do it right now. You, it'll be the most important decision you've ever made. You can use your words. You can pray these words after me. But here we go. Dear Jesus, I admit I can't save myself. But I believe you died to pay for my sins. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child.
And I trust you to bring a power into my life to help me live for you. Thank you for keeping your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just meant that from your heart and you prayed to receive Jesus, that decision you just made is Mount Everest and every other decision you'll ever make is just foothills. I have a packet that I've prepared for you because I know it's so quick. This is just free. It will not cost you anything. It's just like salvation. It's free. Some DVDs and great stuff in there help you know how to take your first steps. And if you just pray with me to receive Jesus, I want this to be yours. If you want me to mail it to you, I will. All you need to do is just take your worship folder. It's detachable. There's a part there, and all you got to do is put your name and address on there. Check the box by the little facsimile of the, of the packet and just say, I prayed to receive Jesus. You can drop it in the offering bags. You can drop it in the boxes in the back. I'll mail it to you this week, but I hate to wait. I just can't stand to wait. So for those of you who are like me and you don't want to wait and you'd like to have this today and you just prayed to receive Jesus, if you, if you have just a few extra moments, there's a way to do it. Right past those middle doors, there's a place called New Spring Store and Guest Services on either side of the little hallway there. And all you got to do is bring your car back. You don't have to make a speech. They won't stalk you or anything. Just bring the car back, say, I pray with Mark. They'll give, you give them this, and they'll give you this, and you can take it with you today. I am so glad you're here today. Can't wait for next weekend. We're going we're gonna to be talking in this series one more time. By the way, if you're here, and, and maybe you just prayed to receive Jesus, and you really want to get him, you want to take the step of believer's baptism, it's not too late. You can do it. We have tables back here. You can just go back there and say, hey, sign me up for baptism. You can do the same thing online. Could be that you're here, and you've accepted Christ. You just need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. Hey, this would be a great time to do it. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward, and new springers, as you, by the way, if you're not a new springer, please don't feel pressured to be part of the offering. This is for new springers. But new springers, please don't forget missions. You, with your missions gift, you're taking Jesus around the world. God bless. Thank you for being here today.